This is our series right now entitled Seven, and we're making our way through a section of a book in the New Testament called Revelation. And contained in that book are addresses by Jesus to real churches in real cities about 2,000 years ago. Here's what we're discovering as we make our way through that. Culture may be different, technology changes, but you know what is a lot the same is people and the issues that they face. And so today we're going to take a look at another one of those seven addresses, and it is to a specific city at a specific time, and the issue that I think is playing out is one of confusion. And so we're going to look at finding direction in confusion, and I think what's happening in the city that we're going to look at looks a lot like this picture, where there are a lot of different ideas, there are a lot of different opportunities, there are a lot of different choices, there are a lot of different influences. How do we find direction, especially if we committed ourselves to following after the Jesus of the Bible? Where do we go? And how do we understand it when we live in a place that looks a lot like this? So without further ado, let's jump into this. There's so much here, and I'm really excited to share with you. If I talk as fast as a Jersey lawyer, I'll just apologize up front, okay? So here we go. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, and let me just stop there real fast. Who is being addressed in this is the church. So this, just like all the other addresses, is not an opportunity for people to look out at the culture of our day and say, yeah, he's talking about that group and this you know, group of people out there. He's talking about people like us. It's talking about people who have committed to following after Jesus. This happens to be in a city called Pergamum. If you're here today and you're kind of checking this thing out and you're not sure where you stand or you're just like, you know what, I'm not sure, you know, what I believe about any of that, you can kind of be off the hook today and you can kind of look in and see what Jesus has to say to people like us. And to the angel in the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell. Dwell is another way of saying live. Now let me ask you this question right up front. If somebody says, I got a sword and I know where you live, does that sound like good news? That sounds like scary news, doesn't it? But this is really good news here, and let me tell you why. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Raider of the Lost Ark movies. You know, if you're younger, they're at least in color. You know, it's been a while since they've been out, but at least they're in color. And there's archaeology and understanding what things mean. There's a lot of it going on in this section, and we're going to try to unpack all of that together. Let's do a little bit of a city profile of Pergamum to understand why Jesus is saying this, because when he says, I know where you dwell, is not scary. This is him saying, I get it. I understand where you live. And I think we're going to discover, I understand that it's hard. So what is Pergamum? Well, this is the a map of modern-day Turkey, a section of it, and it shows where the seven churches, the seven cities are that are addressed in the book of Revelation. Pergamum is there at the top, and it is the capital city of that whole region, and in the capital city is where the governor of that whole region would reside, and there was a lot of authority that was trusted to the governor. One of the symbols of his authority was this. This is called the Jus Gladii, a gladiator sword. And this was something that gladiators would use in the ancient arena to fight with one another. But when the governor had this on his side, he didn't use it to fight. It was symbolic of his authority. He had the right to pronounce 
um, any kind of judgment upon people. You know, we think, well, everybody's entitled to a jury of their peers. That's here and now. That was not there and then. This guy had the final say, including ending your life. And that sword was a symbol of all of that. He's basically somebody who could say, I determine your destiny. I decide whether you live or die. And that's beginning to help us understand why Jesus would say this. These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus saying, that governor does not determine your destiny. He does not have the final word. Jesus saying, I have the final word. And I think there are a lot of people in this day who might live under some fear of things that are beyond our control, of where all of this going and who is going to have the final say. And I think this helps us to understand in this day, just like it was then, the government does not determine your destiny. ISIS does not determine your destiny. Your family of origin doesn't determine your destiny. My own stupid mistakes don't determine my destiny. Jesus says, I have the final say. I have the final word on you and on your ultimate authority. Well, in the city of Pergamum, it looked a lot like this. The city is down below, and up on the hillside, on this cliff overlooking the city, was all kinds of different authority structures. And the whole positioning of this even was to communicate in a visual way to people who lived down in Pergamum, you were under authority. And there wasn't just even one authority structure there. There were multiple ones of it. And so when Jesus says, look, I know where you dwell. I get it. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. What does that mean? And I'll be honest, we're not exactly sure. But let me give you a couple clues that I think give us at least an option to pick from, and then I'll tell you what I think is the reality. One of the uh, most common symbols in the city of Pergamum, these are coins that were minted there, and often in the ancient world, cities minted their own coins, so they were unique just to one place. This is a Pergamum coin, and the snake was one of the most common symbols that they used there. In this coin, you see on the left, there's a basket, and there's a snake climbing out of that. This was a coin that um, was showing a portion of an initiation rite of a temple ceremony connected to the pagan Greek god Bacchus. We get our word debauchery from Bacchus, and so it is symbolizing something that happened in there, and we don't know exactly how the snakes were involved, um, but apparently during those festivals of Bacchus, they released snakes in the middle of the crowd. How much fun would that be, right? Snakes crawling um, all around. Here's another example of a snake curled around a stick. This was connected to a pagan god named Asclepius. Asclepius was a healing god, and there was a temple on that mountaintop in Pergamum. And if you had a body part that you wanted to be healed, and you were going to go to the um, god Asclepius, um, there was an initiation rite, and they would give you a sedative. They would lay you down on some cold marble, and they would release the snakes. And the sign was, if a snake, at least one snake, climbed up onto you and went to sleep on you, that was a sign that Asclepius was saying that was going to bring healing to your body. How many people are saying, you know what, my annual physical is not that bad, and I'm good to go, <laughs> and I'm never going to complain again, right? That's a little frightening. Um, here is a, an Egyptian god named Serapis. 
And then you see the head of a person, you see the body of a snake, and the idea was that there were some divine attributes that were brought through this, but there is just this serpent imagery um, that's all through the city of Pergamum. There's another um, temple that was up there. There's not much of it left. It's over here on the right with just these rocks that are just kind of laying there. That was the temple of Zeus. Why isn't it there? Because in the 1890s, a German archaeologist went down there and removed it and took it back and reconstructed it in the city of Berlin, and it looked like this. And if you look at this, it kind of looks like a giant throne, right? If a big god was going to come down, there's the armrests that are there as well. So when he says that's where Satan's throne is, is he talking about this? Well, that is one of the possibilities. Here's another one. These are some remains of the temple to the Caesars. And the Caesar was in charge, right? Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar. And in these temples to the Caesars, you were um, often compelled to come and bring a sacrifice and to declare out loud, Caesar is Lord. Well, followers of Jesus said, we're not going to say that because we think Jesus is Lord and that would create all kinds of tension. And so if you look at the city of Pergamum, this is a reconstruction of it. Up on that high cliff was all of this. All these different ideas, all these different beliefs, all these different options, all these different choices. And so when he says, look, I know where you live. I get it. I think Jesus is referring to all of it. That there's a lot going on here. And I know that it is difficult for you to follow me in that place. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. So what does Jesus have to say? Look at this word of encouragement. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And we go, okay, so Jesus is saying, hey, you're staying faithful. And who is this Antipas and what happened there? We don't know that from the Bible. There's some other ancient writings that clue us in to what happened there. Antipas um, was a pastor of the church in Pergamum. So he did then and there what I do here and now. And as we said, there was a temple to Caesar, right? And those other writings tell us that at one point Antipas was brought into that temple to the Caesars and told to offer a sacrifice and to declare that Caesar is Lord. And Antipas said, not going to do it. And so you know what they did in the place where the guy holds the sword? They condemned him to death. And this has to be one of the most brutal forms of torture that has ever been created. There was a large brass bowl. A person was locked inside of it. They would light a fire underneath and literally roast someone to death. And if you look at this picture, there's this trumpet or this horn near the mouth. And as people would scream, that trumpet would amplify that sound. And so when you heard the trumpet in Pergamum, somebody else just got roasted. I think it helps us understand why Jesus says, I know where you live. I get it. And so what are people to do in an environment like that? Well, as Jesus goes on and what he says to them, I think it helps us understand some truths of followers of Jesus who live in a challenging culture or time.
So here's what Jesus goes on to say, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who would hold the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Balaam and Balak, what is that? Those sound like very strange names, maybe torn right out of Star Trek. I am Balak from Sector 9. That's not what this is. This is actually an ancient story. It goes way back into the Old Testament in a book called Numbers, about 1,400 years before Jesus is born. And let me tell you a little bit of this story. So God frees the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt. The book of Exodus is about that. And you know, part of that story, um, moving through the Red Sea and all of that, this is a little bit more of an under the radar part of that story. As they encounter different groups of people, one of them is Balak's um, culture. Balak is a general and he sees this Hebrew people coming. He marshals his army and he goes to fight against the Hebrew people and he loses so what's a general to do after he loses a battle? Well, he goes and finds Balaam. Balaam is a sorcerer, and he goes and pays Balaam to pronounce a curse over the Hebrew people. And when Balaam goes on this high place and is overlooking the Hebrew people and is going to speak this curse, there's this incredible coincidence with the story that you saw on the screen before with Tom on the yellow couch. Remember, he wanted to say no, but yes came out. Well, in this story about Balaam, Balaam is going to pronounce a curse. You know what comes out? A blessing. And Balak is there, hey, I paid you for a curse, not a blessing. They're like, oop, I don't know how that came out. Two more times, Balaam tries to pronounce a curse. A blessing comes out. And Balak wants a full refund, right? Plan A, no good. Plan B, no good. A little while later, Balaam comes back to Balak and says, I've got another idea for you. Plan C. You've got a whole bunch of ladies that are beautiful and that work as prostitutes. Let's do this. Have them go and be real friendly with the Hebrew people. What is unique about them? They believe in the one true God. Your people believe in many gods of little spaces here and there. And have them intermingle and eventually intermarry and eventually there will be the end of the Hebrew people as we know them. And so when Jesus is referring to this, he's referring to not a full frontal assault, right? They weren't afraid of the sword, the jus gladii. I mean, Antipas was willing to even suffer on the other side of that. But instead, it was more of a subtle approach to changing the dynamics of somebody's life and just their behavior. And then look what gets added to this. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Yay, sexual immorality. I'm so glad I invited my friend today. That's just the most encouraging topic to be talked about in church. Now, a couple things. Let's remember, who is being addressed here is people committing themselves to following after Jesus. The way that you know, issues like this and boundaries that God talks about. And let's be honest, there's some boundaries God puts in place for us. It goes like this sometimes. And I think this is just flat out wrong. Where we find something and we go, you know what? Stop it. Just stop. And I think in all our lives, when we hear something that maybe, you know, we want to continue doing, maybe we don't, and we hear just stop it, that doesn't really accomplish much of anything. 
Craig Barnes is the president of Princeton Seminary, and he calls this, when we approach issues like this and just go, just stop it, he calls it a bad dog sermon. Right, you're just, bad dog, bad, 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 bad dog. You need to learn to behave yourself. You get in the corner, you filthy animal, you. And he says, sometimes we approach these issues like that, and I gotta tell you, that accomplishes absolutely nothing. And Jesus doesn't go about that. And as he's gonna address the fallout of what's happening in the city of Pergamum with people who have compromised some of their, some of their beliefs, he doesn't just say, you stop it. He's gonna get beneath the behavior. And he's gonna get to their beliefs and to their thoughts. He's gonna go somewhere deeper that can actually accomplish some real change. So also, you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, and notice there, who hold to the teachings, believe certain things, who have latched on to something, and we go, okay, well, who are the Nicolaitans? I mean, I know Nickelodeon, that's not exactly what that's talking about. So Nicolaitans, which again, there are some other writings in history that inform us um, a little bit about that. Let me give you a sense of, um, you know, some of their beliefs, because it really informs us that what I believe matters. Now, we live at a time where there's kind of a, you know, cultural trend out there that says pretty much everything is relative. But I think on some level, we know that certain beliefs will take us in certain directions. Let me give you just a couple real simple illustrations. If I say, you know, I'm a horrible person and I never get anything right and I'm never going to amount to anything, do you think there's going to be some fallout from that? I think so. If I say, you know what, I got it going on and nobody can tell me anything and anybody who comes at me, they're just mean and judgmental and that's going to have some consequences, right? I'm going to be an insufferable person on the other side of that. The Bible tells us this, I'm a broken person and I am loved by a holy and eternal and infinite God. That belief has some outcomes to it as well. So what I believe matters. Here's what the Nicolaitans believe. God is only concerned with your soul and not your body. This is referred to as dualism, that there's a material part of who we are, our flesh and blood. And they said, that part is doomed. Don't worry about that. That doesn't mean anything. You can do whatever you want. Eventually, it's going to go into the ground. What really matters is your soul. Here's what the Bible tells us. God cares about you, body and soul, theology and psychology about your destiny and your dating, that God cares about the totality of who we are. And so in those temples that are up on the top of that cliff with all these different options, without exception, every one of them included a party. And in these parties, you know, it wasn't, you know, all just horrific. They had the best food that was served in the entire city of Pergamum. In our context, we're talking Ruth's Chris Steakhouse steaks are being served up there. It was the best that you could find. If you're a vegan, you're missing out, okay? Because that, that was just the best. And so there was this idea, well, that's, you know, where, you know, it, you want to be. Along with those parties after the food, there was virtually without exception orgies that followed. It was part of the temple rites and rituals that were practiced back then. And Jesus says no. Now, why would Jesus say no? We go, well, 
Is he prudish? Is he out of date, kind of behind the times? He's just out to eliminate our fun. We go, well, it's immoral. Why is it immoral? Let me tell you a couple things that were connected to those temple rites. A lot of the people who were there to participate in those events were trafficked there. That's not great. Also, I think we know this in our day, not just back then, that many people who get involved with, you know, certain behaviors, I heard Tom talk about this in his video. Before I knew it, it was in control. And I had lost control. And sometimes we go down a certain road with behavior and we think it's never going to hurt me or anybody else. And before we know it, we can be enslaved to it. And part of the direction that Jesus has for us is he wants to lead us toward freedom and not toward enslavement. There was an invitation coin. These are called tessera. They're found all across the landscape of Pergamum. These were the invitations to the parties. This is how you got in, was to show that you had one of those coins in your hand. And these were valued in the city of Pergamum, and this was sort of an idea that I'm somebody, and I'm going somewhere, and I'm going to the best thing that this city has to offer. And Jesus is going to aim at people who have committed themselves to following Jesus, but also have been pulled in a lot of different directions and begun to compromise what they believe. And so Jesus says, what I believe matters. And maybe we could look at it this way. Somebody put it, plan a thought, reap an action. Plan an action, reap a habit. Plan a habit, reap a destiny. And many of us are concerned about our destiny. Where does it begin? It begins in our thoughts. You know, in the 12-step environment, those recovery type of groups, isn't it interesting? They don't start this way. Just stop it. Just stop drinking, stop putting that stuff in your body, just stop it. Why not? Because it doesn't work. Where does it begin? Here's a phrase from the 12-step environment. We gotta change your stinking thinking. Right, that it begins with your thoughts, which ultimately plays itself out in your actions. What I believe matters. And also, how I behave matters. To go back to the story of Balaam and Balak and trying to pronounce a curse, but a blessing comes out. What he created is what psychologists call cognitive dissonance. What is cognitive dis dissonance? Let me give you a real simple illustration. So I have this rubber band up here, and if my top fist is representing what I believe, and my bottom fist is representing how I behave, what I do, cognitive dissonance looks like this, when there's a disconnect between what I believe and what I do, it creates tension. And for all of humanity, we can't live in tension for very long, and so something has to give. And we've got a couple different options about what's going to give. Now, let me give you a couple illustrations, and you know, as I choose illustrations, please don't take these as you're saying these are really bad people. You know what the percentage of people is who is here on every Sunday morning who are a work in progress trying to discover who God is making them into being? 100%, right? And that includes people with microphones. So these are just a couple of illustrations. Let's talk about smoking, okay? You know, I've been asked, you know, through the years, does smoking send you to hell? Let's just be clear. No, smoking does not send you to hell. Now, it will make you smell like you've been there. So that's different. 
Um, but it, no, it does not send you to hell. So let's say, you know, you try um, something and you enjoy it, right? But you're like, well, I know that smoking is bad for you and they've made a strong connection to cancer and all of that. I know it's not good for me. Now I've got some tension, cognitive dissonance. And so what is going to give, right? I could just say, well, I'm not going to do that and bring my behavior in line with my belief. But I could also go the other direction. And I could say, well, you know, it's not 100%, right? I know some people have smoked for a long time and they live to be 100, and so it's not a guarantee. And you know what? I can always quit sometime in the future. And it helps me to hang out with some people that I know. So one way or the other we will move to eliminate the tension that we feel in the disconnect between what we believe and how we behave. Here's another example. So let's say I'm tempted to have an affair. And I can say, hey, I believe there's a God who's called me to faithfulness to my spouse. And I believe that the vows that I said that I'm going to be faithful and keep myself un only unto her so long as I both shall live. Um, so I can believe that. But then maybe in my behavior, you know, I'm concerned about being happy. And doesn't God want me to be happy? And, you know, they're kind of having an affair with another part of their life there and my needs aren't being met and, and I can change my beliefs. And so we've got a couple different options available to us. And in the city of Pergamum, what some people were doing who had committed themselves to following after Jesus was making some of those compromises that would mingle things together. And as Jesus is going to call them back to himself, he's not just going to say, you know what, stop it, bad people. He's going to go to something deeper and talk about what we believe. He's going to talk about how we behave. And it really is an opportunity maybe for us to ask ourselves this question, am I being shaped by my culture? Am I being shaped by Christ? By the Jesus that I meet in the pages of the Bible and by the heart of God that I see there time and time again. So what I believe matters, how I behave matters, how I respond to God matters as well. Because God is coming to them to call them back to himself. And look at these words, um, therefore repent. And I said this a couple weeks ago, I think the word repent has been hijacked by some craziness and doesn't express what it really means. The word repent is actually a translation from the Latin, which refers to penance. Penance is feeling really, really bad and sorrowful and maybe just terrible about myself. But that's not what it literally means. Literally, the word is a change of mind, our thoughts, what we believe, that impacts my life's trajectory. So it's changing my mind, which eventually changes the direction in which my life goes. And so Jesus says there's time. And there's a turn that you can make. And then look at what he does. And I think these are direct references to life in Pergamum, but what Jesus has in contrast. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. You think the Ruth's Chris steak is the best thing up on that hillside? And that is the place to be and the person to become? Manna was this miraculous, delicious bread that God rained down from heaven in the Old Testament. He's saying there is supernatural nourishment that Jesus wants to make available to you. What he has is better than what's on the top of the mountain. 
And that's not the only reference to it. And I will give him a white stone, a new name written on a stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You think the, you know, the movers and the shakers in Pergamum have those tessera, those party invitations? The God of the universe wants to give you a personal invitation to his party that will never end throughout all of eternity, the wedding feast of the Lamb that he has prepared and made available to everybody who puts hope and trust in him. And if you think that party is great, you ain't seen nothing yet. And by the way, he will also determine the definition of your identity. And he is the God who loves you, the real you the you that you really are. And he says, you are invited. And forever and ever, he will establish your identity. And you are someone in him. And whatever name you have in your own mind and whatever name others have called you, he says, I have something way better. And you're invited. And it's all his doing. And so to people who had other options, and so do we. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying something that is so helpful to truly wooing people back from a place they shouldn't be. He's saying what Jesus has is better. And so when Jesus says no, his yes is better. And when Jesus calls us away from something, what he's calling us to is better. And whatever we can find here, Jesus is better. And you have been invited by the God who loves you, the real you. Would you bow your heads together with me? So God, thank you for the honesty of knowing where we live. And God, thank you for your love that doesn't just come and condemn us, but it doesn't just excuse us either. It's a love that woos us by showing us how much better it is to follow after you. And thank you for so much patience, so much grace, so many gifts along the way. God, give us wisdom, discernment to live in our day, in our time, and to lean into you through it all and to allow you to shape our understanding of who we are, who the people are that are around us, the people that we meet every day, and who the God of the universe is. And thank you for your love that ultimately led you out of heaven to this world to lay down your life so that we could be forgiven and that we could experience life with you. So God, who knows, maybe today is our day to take a step in your direction. Maybe even to put hope and trust in you, the God who loves us like no one else. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.